When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to New Books and Music, a podcast of the New Books Network. I'm Kristen Turner, and today I'm talking to Rebecca Joffroy Schwinden about her book, From Servant to Savant, Musical Privilege, Property, and the French Revolution, published by Oxford University Press in 2022. Today's copyright laws are predicated on the idea that music is intellectual property, a commodity that has value to its creator and to its publisher. But how did that concept originate and why? From Servant to Savant tackles this question with an insightful examination of the years around the French Revolution, when the legal protections around music moved from a system of monopolies granted by the sovereign that regulated music as an activity to a framework that assumed music was a kind of property. In Joffrey Schwinden's analysis, this is far from a simple history of commodification. It is instead a process entwined with the political, ideological, and cultural agendas of the French revolutionaries. It is also a history of institutions and how the Paris Conservatory, founded in the fluid and sometimes violent aftermath of the French Revolution, became the conservator and arbiter of French musical traditions and pedagogy. Welcome, Rebecca. It's so great to talk to you today. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm excited to talk to you about this really fascinating book. And I wonder, how did you come to this topic? Uh, It's a bit of a long history in itself. Um, I was a history major in undergrad, and I took an American history course. And on one of my tests, sophomore year, the a you know kind of long form question was asked: Was the American or French Revolution more revolutionary? And I became really obsessed with this question, oddly, as a 19-year-old girl. And so I decided to explore that question in my undergrad thesis through the lens of popular songs. And so when I was an undergrad, I wrote my thesis on that topic. And so when I decided, after a long and winding road through possibly becoming a corporate lawyer, I came back to musicology and decided that this was the question that I wanted to pursue Um, More specifically, to ask what role the French Revolution played 
in music history because I, I sensed from the little bit that I knew that there was more to be unpacked there than what musicologists had normally credited that kind of seminal event with. You know, it's so interesting to me how often people will say to me, well, I got interested in this when I was five or when I was, you know, I had a question when I was 12. So, you know, I love that so many of us get interested in the topic that we become obsessed with looking back when we're very, you know, young scholars or, you know, young people. So that's cool that that it goes all the way back to a random question on a test. (laughs) Right. Um, So as professors, I, I always remember that, that maybe my questions are not as random as I think they are when I ask students things. <laughs> I know, it's so cool. So um, just so that we can provide the context for people who are listening to this who might not know a lot about the French Revolution, can you just give us like the quick and dirty history of those years that you really focus on? Because I think I think for most people, it's like the French Revolution. It was really bloody. Guillotine, move on. <laughs> you know, so can you, can you talk about it? You know, give us that sort of historical context real quick so we can use that as the basis for our discussion. Sure. Um, well, I think the thing to know about the years leading up to the French Revolution is that around 1787, 1788, France uh, was looking at, and really Louis XVI, the king, was looking at a set of challenges that on their own maybe would not have been so devastating. So you had a fiscal crisis where people who had the most money had ways of getting out of paying taxes. And so the tax burden was very much on people who didn't have a lot of resources. You had economic crises. Um, One example, some of them were real, some of them weren't. You know, France had spent a lot of money on the Seven Years' War, on the American Revolution. Um, They had kind of thrown a lot of capital into those conflicts. People were fearing famine. There were a series of um, resource scarcity and kind of issues at that time that people were facing throughout France. Um, and then some of the more common things that we hear about in the studies in the humanities is that you were facing a lot of social and cultural and religious changes as well, where people were, society was secularizing and people were kind of moving away from the church and the move away from the church was, was also a way of kind of desacralizing the king. And so, you know, I could go on and on, but there was, it was the fact that there were so many issues that had come to a head at this point that Louis XVI decided to bring together a an assembly of notables, which was a representative body that had not um, come together for some time, over a century, and to come to Paris and give him essentially suggestions about what needed to be improved in the kingdom. And so people came to Paris as representatives of their constituents with their cahiers de doléances, their lists of of grievances. Um, And when you ask an entire country of people to put their grievances on the table, um, you might expect that some things start to get a little bit inflamed. Um, And so it was that uh, spring and summer of 1789 when you know of the kind of iconic fall of the Bastille and everything that things kind of um, snowballed from there into the event of the French Revolution. The first couple years of the revolution, there was a lot of hope that something could be worked out with the monarchy. Um, But once the king um, and his family tried to escape from Paris, they were caught at the border 
um, people kind of lost faith in that possibility. And that's when things spiraled into, okay, we're, we're now going to be officially a Republic without a monarchy. Um, but because things got so out of hand, you know, by 1793, you had a lot of violence with the committee on public safety, which became the de facto executive branch, just trying to, um, trying to manage things and in a very violent way. So this is when the guillotine is like really heated up and a lot of people are really senselessly killed, um, for whatever, you know, um, by the time you get to 1794, 95, 1795 is when the conservatory is founded. So at this point in the revolutionary decade, people, um, especially in the government are really just trying to put together the institutional pieces after everything had, it, it had been kind of a burn it all down approach earlier in the revolutionary decade. And now it was, uh Oh, we need to rebuild something. And so that's when the conservatory comes into play. You have this kind of conservative backlash to the violence and the um, what we're seeing as the excesses of the early revolution. And so by the time you get to um, Napoleon's rise to power in the late 1790s, and then eventually he crowns himself emperor in 1804, um, in a lot of ways you have, a, you have some backstepping to these kind of revolutionary agendas that were meant to transform um, French society. I guess that overview doesn't give a lot of credit to the kind of like liberty, equality, fraternity that we normally hear as a, as a description of the French Revolution. But I guess when you study it for long enough, you become kind of disillusioned with that motto. Well, I guess you mentioned the conservatory. Maybe we can just start there. I did not anticipate this book would be so bureaucratic. <laughs> like you must have read a lot of government reports. I mean, it almost is a history of bureaucracy in a lot of ways. Can you talk about sort of, you know, why that was? Like how did this revolution that was was sort of about overturning institutions become so not just institutionalized and about founding new institutions like conservatory, but so heavily bureaucratic about making all these like really fine grained bureaucratic decisions. How, how did that happen? Well, I think, I mean, we can compare it to our times, right? Like people can complain about the system, right? Whatever system it is that frustrates them, whether, you know, um, but if you decide you're going to completely abolish it, you have to put something else in its place. And so people who are trying to actually get up and make the country run every day realized immediately, well, if we're going to abolish privilege, which was a legal, social, economic, fiscal system, if we're going to abolish that, we need to replace it with something else because it's, it's like if we got up today and said, let's, okay, let's not do capitalism anymore well, okay, but what are we going to do instead, right? And so you really end up with a whole new process of, of building institutions. And I don't mean to say it in a way that it's inevitable, but um, that's certainly what happened once the French Revolution had kind of become a pile of ashes where you had the former monarchy and everything else. Enough people stepped in and said, okay, but how are we going to continue to function as a, as a nation? So that brings up, you used the, one of the words in your title that I think we need to explain, and that is, what is musical privilege? So that's sort of what you start with. That was um, the pre-revolutionary sort of framework. Can you talk about that? What is that? Sure. Uh, so privileges were privilege. They were legal permissions. 
that were really a, a legal and economic and social way that France functioned since pretty much the, I mean, for centuries before the revolution. And so there were a lot of kinds of privileges. You had fiscal privileges, which would allow you to be exempt from taxes. Guilds had privileges to be the exclusive um, group to produce certain products. There were parts of towns that had the privilege where that was the only area where you could sell, I don't know, baskets or something. Um, there was a woman in southern France who owned the privilege to dictate when people could play a violin in the street. So like privileges really were this like very far-reaching economic structure and legal structure. And so what I call in the book musical privileges, so no one used the term musical privileges, you know, in the old regime, but it's a term I use as a kind of catch-all to indicate how privileges dictated different parts of musical production. So um, music printing, it wasn't required that you have a privilege to print music the way it was required for books, typically, but it was better to obtain a privilege if you're going to print music because then you have a little bit more control over um, the, the ownership of the music that you're printing. So music publishing required privileges or benefited from them. Um, if you wanted to open a concert series, you had to get a privilege, um, which would come from the opera because the opera um, held the exclusive privilege to perform music sung through in French. <laughs> um, so things that like you wouldn't expect in music had privileges attached to them and people had to work in that system in order to make money from producing music or even just to produce music at all. And were these privileges hereditary? You know, did that woman who controlled when you got to play the violin, did she, <laughs> did she, um, uh, you know, get it from an, a forebearer or did it change whenever? I mean, how, how did that work? Well, there are different kinds of privileges. You had ones that were granted and ones that you were born with. So, you know, what you're describing, hereditary type privileges, like seigneurial privileges would be the kind that maybe we'd see depicted in operas where, you know, a certain someone with a certain noble title had the right to hunt on certain lands and things like this. Those are things that were seigneurial that were, were inherited. Whereas usually the, and I'd say almost exclusively the musical privileges we're talking about were really ones that were granted. So they were granted technically by the king, but in a lot of cases they were granted like by an appellate court or something like that. Or sometimes um, you could ascend to a political, a political office or something. You could purchase a venal office that had privileges attached to it. So there were a lot of different ways that someone could get a privilege. And some of them, some of them were by birth, but when we're talking about musical privileges, for the most part, they were ones that had been granted. But it wasn't beyond parents to negotiate them for their kids when it came to musical privilege. So like the composer Lily made sure that some of his descendants had access to the privileges that he had earned when he was still alive. So what did, what was, what replaced this, this system? Sure. So um, the, the idea that, I mean, really who I'm drawing on when I talk about the transition from privilege to property, because I would say property replaced that system. Um, I'm drawing on a, a specific book by the historian Rafe Blaufarb called The Great Demarcation, where he argues that the kind of fundamental um, consequence of the French Revolution was that it replaced the privilege system with property. 
And so really musical privileges were permissions to do things in music, to, to open a concert, to perform somewhere, to print music. Uh, when, the pro- when a property system was implemented, then music really became more of an object that people valued for the possibility of owning it. So that was one of my questions when I was reading it. I mean, it makes sense to think of the privileges were really controlling activity and afterwards they were controlling it as a product. But didn't people think of music already as property? I mean, you have patrons who wouldn't let you know, composers who worked for them print their music because they wanted to hoard it or, you know, people, composers sold their music to publishers to be printed and that sort of thing. So how, how is that way of thinking about music property different from thinking of music as property post-revolution? Well, you bring up a good point, right? Which is that I think people certainly were already thinking of music as a kind of property. People were thinking as pri- of privileges as properties, and they were legally not correct, right? So what we're talking about is the gap between kind of the letter of the law and the actual implementation of it, and what people believe the law to be. And so I would say that certainly people were, you know, owned music and believed that they owned music before the revolution, but their, especially composers, realized that there was actually a lack of legal structures to assure that property to them. And so the the real change is that the legal system kind of caught up, if you will, with the way that people had started to think of music. Oh, I see. That makes sense. Um, So one of the other things that you said was that... um, musicians um, used the rights granted to authors as sort of a model for what they were asking for. Um, And because music was not sort of the first priority of the sort of, I don't know, revitalization of sort of French institutions. So what, um, what effect did that have on the way that music was treated legally, that musicians were looking to authors as opposed to, I don't know, some other kind of person to or, or, or role as their model for, um, for what they wanted uh, out of the French revolutionary government? Well, my argument is that the, one of the consequences of musicians and especially composers drawing on already achieved authors' rights is that music ends up being defined in this kind of textual way that books would have been. And so if you want to have evidence of a piece of music being your own and you want that registered, then it needs to be printed on a score and it needs to be submitted to a depository and these kinds, you know, the the formalities that come along with music achieving rights rooted in author's rights is that music gets treated like a text. And so, you know, my kind of bigger argument here is that this is really a moment when the rise of the score is the central object of musical, you know, performance and study is really codified into a, into a legal system. Um, So, The other thing that um, is important in French revolutionary history that music gets really caught up into that you talk about a lot is sort of um, how what becomes valued in France is being of public utility. And there is a lot of 
concern about what was public and what was private, because how those things were, you know, regulated and treated in French society was pretty different. So how does music get caught up in these larger kind of, I don't know, um, institutional or political values? Right. So much like the U.S., the the kind of foundational political government documents of the French Revolution assure property to people, right? You can't just arbitrarily take people's property, um, which under a privileged system, you kind of could. <laughs> um, so once there is this property regime implemented, the government has to figure out what belongs to individuals and what belongs to the nation. Because if before the revolution, technically everything really belonged to the king and he just let everybody else use it, right? Like this is kind of the way it worked. Um, And so it was this process of figuring out, well, what is something that is the nation's, that is the common good for everybody, like, you know, water or, you know, these kind of resources that that we still have debates about today as as who owns it and who has rights to it. Um, like, I don't own, I don't think I own the land rights under my house in Texas because there might be valuable fuel resources under it or something, right? Like, this is still something that we argue about. Um, and then there were, of course, you know, things that people would own privately that they no longer had to have some beholden to people um, who were above them in the privilege chain. So the reason music got caught up in it was because there were arguments about the the very the public good, the public utility of music. And this is something that the that musicologist Jan Pasler has researched and, and um, talked about extensively in her book, Composing the Citizen. Um, although she's talking about Third Republic France, she does kind of flashback to the French Revolution to explain the origins of that concept, that music serves a public good. And so one negotiation that had to be um, ironed out during the revolution about music was when it was a private property and when it did belong to the public. I mean, these are things we talk about now, right? Like when something's on Spotify, when something's on YouTube, um, you know, when is it that everyone can have access to a piece of music or like, you know, should you pay royalties to someone who wrote happy birthday, these kind of things. Um, a lot of those debates were, were going on um, as they were implementing this property regime. But a big part of it in France was that they really viewed music, not just as a public utility, but also as this really important cultural heritage that everyone should have access to. And so the, the challenge was drawing the line um, between when it was when it was a public good and when it was private property, did it serve um, people's interest or like musicians' interest to have music be considered a public utility, or was this a problem for them in sort of being able to function and make a living as musicians? It really depended on where in the music world someone sat, right? So if you are a theater owner in a tiny city far away from Paris, you want, you want music to kind of be a public good so that you could put on whatever opera you want and not have to trace, like track down the composer and pay them for the music that you're performing or things like that. Um, It was actually really good for publishers throughout Europe to have loopholes so that they could be exchanging musical scores and making money off of them without having to pay the composer every time they sold a score and things like that. And so And then for for musicians who are, let's say, 
they were mostly performers. They didn't compose or anything like that. Well, it was good for music to be a public utility that was protected in institutions like the conservatory, because then they could kind of have a bureaucratic job that was a little more reliable than kind of the gig economy, for lack of a a more appropriate word, that existed in Paris before the revolution. So it really depended on where someone was in the music world, whether it was good for them for music to be considered public, a uh, public good or a private property. And some people were very, um, you might even say hypocritical on this, right? You have people who go between the two. I think Gray Tree is probably our best example of like total revolutionary hypocrite <laughs> when it comes to this kind of stuff. So, Well, why don't you explain that more? What do you mean by that? Well, so Great Tree, you know, he was a really beloved um, composer of opera comique, of dialogue opera. He was uh, uh, beloved by Marie Antoinette, protected by the royal family, had a pension. When they finally did start requiring privileges for music engravings, he got to become, you know, the, the guy who put the seal on the scores to say that people had paid their dues, this kind of thing. Um, so he's very enmeshed in that privilege system before the revolution happened. And he certainly, but he still complained a lot about people benefiting from his music that he had composed, whether it was arrangements or unauthorized performances. So when the revolution happened, he really joined up in these efforts to get personal property rights to music because he was really annoyed about how much other people had made money from his music. But he also enmeshed himself in the conservatory, the National Institute, like he, he accepted those positions. He never even really worked in those places, but he did accept the positions and like the protections that came along with them. And so, you know, he that's why when we read his, you know, his memoirs and things like that, you really have to take them with a grain of salt because they do tell us something about that moment and the changes that professional musicians faced. But they also just tell us a lot about how people sometimes are just going to say what they need to say to to get out of a, a kind of sticky situation as best they can. Um, so uh, that sort of brings up, for me, um, this is mostly an institutional history, but there are a few people that come up over and over again. So Graytree is someone who comes up quite a bit. Um, are there other specific people that you think are really important in the story that you're telling? Um. I think Nicolas Dallerac is is very important. So he was kind of Grey Tree's buddy, uh, <laughs> joining up with you know playwrights and authors to try to get rights for the the operas that they were composing. Um, but even some of the minor characters, I think, are really important here. You know, Rodolf Kreutzer is usually talked about just in terms of his his violin um, performances and everything, but the way that he was executing this bureaucratic kind of imperial agenda for the conservatory, going to Italy to take music back uh, for the new conservatory library. Um, You know, I, I think that there's a lot of the actors in this story are, are important, even if they're kind of minor, right? Like I guess the pun is intended, Um, you know, Tobias Schmidt, who's just trying to get a patent on anything he can, like throughout the whole book, like we meet him in the first page and he's trying to patent the guillotine and they're like, no, that's crazy. And then he's trying to get a patent on one of his keyboards and he finally gets it, you know, spoiler alert. Um, But 
Yeah, so it's hard to just to say who is most important in this book because it's it really is a prolific cast of characters who are kind of coming in and out of of this, and that's why I wanted it to be. It's it's kind of not an institutional history either, in the sense that it's not about one institution, right? It's about people navigating multiple institutions um, and how messy that is, but how in the end that that process of negotiation can actually have very tangible, um, long lasting effects. So you mentioned Kreutzer, who was uh, I did not expect to see in this book. So that was that was fun, but um, it did remind me of something. When I was in grad school, I took a class on foreigners in Paris in the 19th century, and we had this inside joke about that France always won. It was always France won, everyone else zero. And we th- and what we meant that by that was there was always a way for people in Paris to figure out that something was French. It did not matter where it came from or who was doing it. There was a way to make it French. And Kreutzer, Kreutzer's activities remind me of this. So um, he goes out to, he's sent to Italy by the conservatory, I think, and if I remember correctly, to basically take music back from Italy to France because it, France had conquered that portion of Italy. And they then do that with all these other places that France has 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 uh, militarily conquered. So what was this about? Why were they sending folks out to kind of steal music, essentially, bringing them back, and then like, this is French? Like, what what is the way that they're using music in this? Uh, and how does it relate to what you're talking about? So... It was part of a broader project. Um, as France started to attempt to liberate <laughs> Europe according to its revolutionary ideals, <laughs> um, the idea was that anything, any kind of art that was highly regarded anywhere actually belonged in France or because it couldn't be foreign on French soil because France was the natural home of art because art is only really thriving if it's in a place that is free. So you kind of have this line between art and freedom that's drawn uh, during the revolution that then in a very disturbing way justifies taking cultural property from all of the places that are conquered militarily. And so that's why you get, you know, it's pretty famous, the, the items that were brought back from the Egyptian campaigns and things like that, the Apollo Belvedere. I mean, things that you can still see in Paris, right? I mean, a lot of things at some point were, were given back, but a lot of things weren't. Um, And so I think one thing that my book highlights um, that hasn't really been brought up in musicological scholarship before is that music was part of this agenda to appropriate cultural property from other European nations, make it French so that Paris would be the kind of capital of universal art. Well, I think that's fascinating because of course Paris really does become a huge musical capital in the 19th century. But also we often, as musicologists, think of that as a German thing, like the the musical universal is German, right? And not French. So how do you think, I mean, you don't really deal with it this book, but I kept thinking about how did that become something 
that start out as French, but musicologists think of it as being a German impulse to take German music and universalize it. Do you have any idea how that happened? I hate to take you off the book, but I just it was so fascinating to me that that is, you know, was what happened. Sure. Well, I, I mean, obviously, I'm, you know, I'm not a scholar of, of German music, but I do think that in some way it has to do with the fact that the French were not completely sold on, um, I guess in some ways you could say they weren't completely sold on instrumental music still. So you had that debate in the conservatory, like, is the music that we're going to cultivate going to be instrumental? Is it going to be operatic? Is it going to be vocal? You know, this, that question lingered. And so I really think that the, ultimately the, the reason was that it was hard to say that opera, which came in all kinds of languages and depicted all kinds of cultures was universal when the language and the costuming and everything else makes it seem so specific. Um, and so I do think at like a very basic level, it, it was actually a consequence of genre and that the French were still cultivating opera as, um, you know, as kind of the pinnacle of musical um, triumph, I guess. Well, that make, yeah, that does absolutely make sense. Um, so anyway, getting back to your actual book, um, do you think there was a moment where, maybe not a moment, I don't really believe in turning points, but, you know, it music is regulated like property. It's regulated based upon sort of authorial ideas. Was there a moment, do you think, where that crystallized or a time period where that crystallizes the way that it's going to be approached as opposed to something else? Like could copyright law at that point really have changed into protecting performance, for instance, or protecting music as an intellectual idea and not as a property? Or is there just too much sort of momentum to think about music as property to, to imagine that there would be a way for it, for something else to have happened. Mm. Well, I can say that people were imagining it in other ways, you know? So for example, um, performers at the opera, instrumentalists, dancers, singers were saying that their performances were their own creative property. And now obviously this is before a time where people might've like recorded it and sold, you know, their performance for, you know, illicitly, but there were people imagining property in, in other ways. Um, and, but I just think that it would have been hard to to navigate a different system given the kind of simultaneous rise of consumerism. Because even before the revolution, it had become, maybe from the 1770s, consumerism had kind of become a type of patriotic act where you were contributing to the health of the nation by stimulating the economy. Um, and so because you had that dual rise of nascent capitalism and this property system, you know, because property was central to, to political rights. Like you had to own property to vote and things like that. Right. But then property is also central to capitalism. Like I own this and you don't, and we can exchange money if you want it. 
And so it had that dual function. And so I think it would have been hard at that point to somehow navigate a different system. Um, but I don't know, you know, I say that and right now I'm sitting here thinking like, okay, crypto music is on the rise and I'm thinking about what are the, what are the alternatives, right? So I'm, sh- you know, people are always trying to think of like, whoa, what are we doing here? Is there a different way? Um, but it's hard to say whether or not that could have actually come to fruition in that particular context because it was just so chaotic. So what do you mean in your topic or in your um, title rather, what does it mean to say going from servant to savant? Can you explain those two concepts? Sure. So, I mean, really in the book, what I'm tracking is how the transition from a privileged system to a property system maps onto musicians' professionalization in the 18th century, which is something that I think musicologists have have kind of long accepted, that it was the 18th century, end of the 18th century, that musicians really started to professionalize. And so what I mean by that is early in the 18th century, musicians, because of the privilege system, were still subordinated to those who held privileges, whether it was that they had to be part of a guild, whether it was that they worked for a noble household, they were servants to others. But by the end of the century, because of these changes, both in regime, but also in institutions, musicians started to be taken seriously as professionals. And they had a lot more agency in in their own profession and the way that the regulations and standards of their profession were going to be set up. And so that's the the transition that I'm that I'm tracing there from servant to savant. So one of the other things about savant is it has this sort of connotation as a word of being someone who is a genius at something or who is very good at something, right? Um, and you do talk a little bit about sort of this concept of musical genius and how um, and what was the French concept of genius, which also plays into this idea of who gets to hold music as property and why they got to, to they were, why a particular person was chosen to, to be the property holder. Can you talk about that a little? Sure. Um, so there, I guess I would say that originality became a barometer of musical property. So you owned a piece of music if you came up with it yourself and it was super original and so then it was yours, right? And so there was inherently this argument about genius of what kind of music deserved to be protected as a kind of property. Whereas if you took one of Gretry's best melodies from one of his operas and then you arranged it for the piano into clever variations, well, really you were just copying him. So you were kind of just, you know, a hack. It was like second rate. So like, it's not like you really own that. Right. And so you start to have this hierarchy of what music deserves to be protected as property, who deserves to own it based on originality and originality was very much connected to genius. The geniuses, you know, that the idea of genius in France earlier in the 18th century had really been about showing people something in the world from a new perspective. So it's not that you were necessarily putting something new in the world, but that you were helping people to see something in the world from a different perspective, whether that was a tree in a painting or a word in a verse, right? Something like this. By the end of the century, it's that you're putting something into the world that wasn't there before. And so this happens precisely as that French conception of genius is is changing. Um, But the trick in France is that really 
genius could be something that w- was an attribute of an individual, but also something that was cultivated by the nation because it gave someone the appropriate environment to become a genius. And so that's why those debates between what was private and public musical property were really tricky because, yeah, maybe Gray Tree wrote a genius melody, but it's because, you know, he came to Paris in the 1770s and was immersed in this wonderful environment that made him a great musician, right? So it was a very sticky issue, um, but it was certainly crucial to the way that some of these laws were defined. So we've been talking about the conservatory on and off and discussing it, but we haven't really, you know, nailed down what the, what was going on with the conservatory. And it really does um, dominate the last half of your book. So tell us about the conservatory. Why is that such an important institution? Yeah. Um, well, it's important because it, it represents the epitome of music as a public property. Right. It's essentially an institution that represents music as a public good that is for the nation. On the other hand, what it actually does is it maintains control and kind of ownership over French music for itself. So anyone who can't gain access to the conservatory might be in a tough position because they're basically fighting the institution. Um, And so it's really set up as the driving institutional force for French music until the 20th century. I mean, and this is something that musicologists kind of learn about when they learn about French music history in the 19th century. You have the insiders and you have the outsiders in the conservatory. There's always someone kind of waving their fist at the conservatory. Um, And so understanding how that institution was formed in relation to its particular historical moment in the revolution, I think is very illuminating about the way that it then went on to shape discourses about music in the 19th century, but also even the way that music was produced in the 19th century. So let's dig in a little bit to this. One of the things that I found interesting was um, the conservatory is founded right as the, as the revolution itself was changing, right? And so they were, the people who were founding it had to really navigate some very tricky political waters because it was in that moment where you're sort of transitioning from the violence of the early part of the the revolution to this conservative backlash. So can you talk about like, you know, what was the environment that they had to negotiate there and how did that um, manifest itself in the ways that the conservatory ultimately was, you know, developed, I guess. Sure. So you had the, you already had a Royal singing school that had been established um, in the 1780s before the revolution that was meant to be a kind of a more holistic curriculum for musical training associated with the opera rather than the kind of just role learning that usually went on in the opera's magasin. So you already had people associated with that. When the revolution started, you had musicians who took up positions in the military because it basically gave them a job. And so they were at the service at the time of the city of Paris. And so early in the revolution, as you have these education reforms being proposed, you also have people proposing different kinds of music schools. So you have people proposing a new opera school that would train people for the theater, people who are suggesting that really there should be some kind of school for military musicians. And this is all as those military musicians are really still working for the city of Paris. Um, 
eventually those musicians transitioned to working for the national government. And like, this is kind of a technical thing about the technical in the sense that I don't think musicologists really care that there was like this really deep political difference between the city of Paris government and the national and executive government. And that mattered at certain times um, who had power. And so those musicians did transition into the service of the national government. And that's when they were really able to stake their claim. They joined up with those musicians who wanted a theater school and opera schools and said, you know, hey, together we can have this national institution that is not just for Paris, but for all of France. They started to make this, again, kind of universal claim. Um, And that's when they were really able to get full backing from the national government was when they were making those claims that they were going to be able to benefit the entire nation with the education that they provide. So that's sort of how, um, how it became the arbiter of what was, what was really French music nationally, right? Because the conservatory becomes not just about Paris, it becomes about the nation. And so what that what was happening in the conservatory becomes French music, so to speak. But it doesn't really um, speak to how the way they trained musicians in the conservatory then becomes important, like for all of 19th century Western music, essentially. So how, how does that, you know, how does that kind of training, what is that training? How did that become rooted in French, you know, because I, I, let me rephrase that the kind of training that the conservatory propagated, turns out to be really rooted in these revolutionary concepts, because that's when it was developed. So can you talk about what that training is, and and how it was, you know, a product of its time, I guess? Sure. Um, So the training that was implemented at the conservatory was very much in line with the kind of technical and professional training that was being implemented in a whole host of institutions that were similar to the conservatory. So during the revolution, you have the founding of really major national schools. You have the École Polytechnique, the Polytechnic School. You have the School of Mines. You have the School of Bridges. You have the School of Health, right? Like you have all of these professional schools founded during the revolution. Um, and they are all implementing a standardized curriculum that would take theoretical skills and help students to apply them to practical situations so that they could use their scientific knowledge to advance French economic agendas, right? So like we need people to not just theoretically be able to think about how to measure space in front of them. We need them to also then be able to go out there and build you know, forts on it and things like this, right? So you need this combination of theoretical and practical knowledge. And there is a lot of resonance between the method books and training that the conservatory came up with and implemented and those approaches that were being put into place in other kinds of revolutionary schools and institutions. And so I think that's a really important point because that professionalization process, that process of accreditation and technical education really drew on what was being implemented at other education institutions that were founded at the, at the same time, the same year. 
Was this way of training significantly different than someone would have encountered had they tried to get musical training in 1750? Do you see it as a big change or was this more of a, you know, a smaller development? Well, I, I would say it was a big change because before the revolution, you're really looking at a kind of either a cathedral school where people are, you know, getting this kind of all around musical training where they're singing with a choir, they're learning keyboard skills, whatever. Um, or maybe someone would have worked with a personal tutor for, for music. And there were, of course, a lot of method books before the revolution. It's not like method books didn't exist. They certainly did. I think what's different here is that there was such codification across instruments and it was really pushed as the method, right? So now you have this, you know, conservatory approved method that's being sold throughout France. And so I think it's really about that codification of a kind of authoritative way. Whereas before the revolution, I think more people would have thought about musical training as a matter of, um, a matter of the, the kind of tastes and styles of the teachers that you may have been studying with and the choices that you might have been making. So I'm an oboist. I learned how to play oboe from the body makeup, which was right out of the Paris Conservatory, right? And that was in the 1980s or the <laughs> 90s when I was learning how to play yeah. the oboe. So for anyone who doesn't know about musical training, it may, may not realize just how fundamental those method books that came out of the Paris Conservatory become to learning how to play a Western classical instrument everywhere. You know, it was... Um, uh, really fundamental to those kinds of training regimes. Do, do you, you know, how did that happen? How did we go from this is how you get trained in the Paris Conservatory to this is how you learn how to play the oboe in Greensboro, North Carolina, in, you know, in 1980? <laughs> well, the, conservator the conservatory um, was really the, it was the first modern institution of its kind. And it was replicated throughout the globe. And, and I mean, that's, it's really all you can say about now, immediately, you know, at, during the revolution, um, you had the conservatory in Milan that was being founded where they were, you know, there's a story of them bringing the giant copies of the, the, the Paris conservatory method books into Milan, like here is your method that you will get from France. Right. And so it, it was a matter of, there was some matter of force, some matter of influence, right? You have mu musicians trained at the conservatory who then go to completely different places and start implementing that same kind of training system. I've had students who have done amazing research projects about um, how some of these methods were implemented, for example, in Latin America and South America, basically by musicians who were moving around the Atlantic, right, and going to other places. And so, you know, institutions don't move, but people do. And so they replicate the training that they've experienced or that they've found effective. And um, that's one way that the, the Paris Conservatory became uh, kind of the dominant model. I mean, I work in a conservatory environment. I mean, I wish there weren't so many resonances with what I say in my book and what my everyday job is like. And yet there are some striking similarities. So, well, maybe that's a, a good way to end um, to our discussion. So if listeners know much about uh, music copyright law, I'm sure what you are, have been talking about will sound very familiar to them because it's pretty clear that there are so many ways that this French approach becomes the, um, 
becomes the basis for modern copyright law. But for those that don't, can you talk about how, you know, what do you see as the, the important um, influences or, or, you know, the way that this French approach is, is, is really the, the basis for um, how we regulate music to this day? Well, I think there's, in terms of copyright, I think the most important thing is that there's still very much a priority placed on the composer um, or the person who created the actual thing that is inscribed, right? So if in the 19th century, the priority was placed on a score, in the 20th century, that's kind of transitioned over into the recording, and so that that emphasis on just the original creator and the object, the recording object is something that really persists. Um, but also even down to the argument about, you know, during the revolution, they were already saying, look, melodies can be original, but harmonies can't. If you go read, there's been more music copyright cases in the last few years than there were for like, you know, the 10 years before that. And a lot of them have to do with these issues, right? Like you can copyright melody, you can't copyright harmony, these kinds of things. And so there's a real persistent on persistence in the particular people and objects that are prioritized, um, certainly. But I would also say that the influence that persists in all of this from the perspective of the conservatory is that there's a real institutionalization of the composers and the compositions and music that's considered to be the kind of epitome of musical achievement. And that's left a lot of people out. And so by replicating that conservatory model that was there from the very beginning about, we need to pick the great, great works by the great masters. I mean, this is what they were writing in their letters. Um, those great works by the great masters did have a regulative effect and those institutional mechanisms were very much set up during the revolution. Um, well, thank you so much for talking to me about this fascinating study that you have published. Um, now that you are at the end of such a huge project, what are you uh, doing next? Uh, well, I guess inevitably, I have been thinking about music as property since 1789. So collaborating with other scholars to think about those lasting effects in music production now um, in a variety of ways. And in my own work, thinking about crypto music in particular, because crypto music builds um, provenance into the financial mechanism by which you exchange music. And so you have this, this way of tracing ownership every time a piece of music is exchanged. So I've been thinking about that quite a bit in my work. Um, and then historically speaking, I've been thinking about the people who were left out of these institutions, right? So what were non-professionals, what were women doing? How were they navigating um, these, these, changing, um, these changing regimes in terms of their musical lives? And so that's also kind of where I'm headed next.
Well, I look forward to seeing whatever you do next, and maybe uh, we can have another chat about your next book. So thank you so much for joining me today. This is New Books and Music, a podcast of the New Books Network. I'm Kristen Turner, and I've been talking to Rebecca Joffroy Schwinden about From Servant to Savant, Musical Privilege, Property, and the French Revolution, published by Oxford University Press in 2022. Thank you so much. Thank you.